Well, it was about six or seven years ago or so, I had ended a, a sermon on a particular Sunday morning. And uh, at the church I was at in Lansing, what I would do most commonly is I was just kind of stand up front. And depending on the sermon, the day, whatever, people would come and talk with me. Some days, of course, there'd be a couple people. Other days, there'd be many. And on that particular day, there were many people waiting to talk with me. There was a line of people. And as I looked at the line, I noticed that at the end of the line, there was this young woman, around 25 years old, and she was letting everyone else go first. She had arrived there early, but she was letting everyone else go first. And I'll tell you what, if you've never met someone before, but just by their countenance, you see the great humility that they have, the grace that they have towards others. It was evident in her life. I'd never seen her, though. Eventually, it was her turn. And she came up and started talking, and she began to tell me her name was Vendana. And it was the first time that she had ever been to a church, not just our church, but a Christian church. It was her first time. And she was just blown away by the whole thing. I mean, she couldn't say enough about the light, she said, that she felt, the presence of God that she felt, the beauty, the power, she said, that she felt. She went on and on about that service. And then she began to talk to me and began to say things and speak into my life in, in such beautiful ways, especially from somebody who's never met me before. And then she looked at me and she says, well, I, I have a, a question. She said, can I have one of your books? And I said, well, I, 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 I haven't written any books. And she says, I'm sorry. She says, can I have one of the books that all the Christians read? I says, you mean the Bible? Well, yes, is, is that what it's called? I said, well, yeah, it's called the Bible. I said, absolutely. I, you know what? I'll buy you a copy myself. I'll mail it to you. Give me your contact information. And she was thrilled at that. And then she said, well, thank you. But then now I got another question. She said, is there a book that will tell me what your book says? Because if I read your book, I'll never understand it. Is there a book that will tell me what your book says? And I said, well... In my mind, I thought, that is the, I've never heard this before. But I said, you know what? Yes, that's called a commentary. Can I have one of those? She said. I said, well, the thing is, there's not really a commentary of the entire Bible. There's a commentary of various sections of the Bible. I said, here's what I'll do. You know what? Uh, when I send you the Bible, I'm going to mark it. I want you to start in a place called the Gospel of John. And I'm going to send you a commentary of the Gospel of John. I'll mail those to you. And uh, then you'll have a chance to read them, which is exactly what I did. And then after uh, I told her that, again, she was so thankful. Then I looked at her and I said, I can tell you're a person of faith. Um, what's your background? Are you Muslim? I said to her. She says, oh, no, no, no. I'm Hindu. And at that moment, I realized, at least for me, the conversation was over. Because I didn't know much about the Hindu faith, to be honest with you. I grew up on the west side of Michigan. Have you ever been to the west side of Michigan? Many of you haven't, but if you have, you'll know that if you're going to talk about things of religion on the west side of Michigan, really the only conversation you're going to have is what version of reformed a person would be of, you know? Are they Dutch Reformed? Are they Christian Reformed? You know, are they Protestant Reformed? Are they Reformed Baptist? Or are they just Reformed? I mean, that's, that's basically the question you're going to you learn as you talk to somebody. Somebody who's a Hindu or a Muslim or Buddhist. I mean, those would be people you saw on TV. They live somewhere else, another part of the planet, but they didn't impact your world. And so I had never studied up on this. I didn't even know what to say. 
And in that moment, I think I represented many of us. Because the reality is, if we're going to stop to think about it, you just heard in the video, our mission is to engage people to live and serve like Jesus. And that includes everyone. So the reality is that Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists, people of the Jewish faith, they're not on the other side of the world. They have now become our next door neighbors. Do you know how to engage with them? Do you know what to say? Do you know what they believe? Do you know how you can respect them in your conversation? Do you know anything about that? Because I sure didn't. And that's why over a year ago, I began planning this series. We're going to go into uh, starting today, a series called Uncovered. And we're going to uncover some basic beliefs about each faith. And uh, it's going to be incredibly interesting, I think. But we're also going to uncover how we respond to people. You know, how do we do this? How do we converse with people? How do we engage others, in particular this morning? How do we engage Hindus to hopefully live and serve like Jesus? What does that look like? And so we're going to answer that question today, or at least start. And then as we dive into the series, I want to let you know that because, I mean, God put this on my heart over a year ago to do this series. Um, this isn't something I just happened to start up a couple of weeks ago. I had planned for this. I'm going to be away on vacation, visiting family up in Michigan. And so while I'm away, I want to let you know what's happening. Today we're talking about Hinduism. Next week, I'll tell you what, the timing of this, I just couldn't be more perfect. We're going to be talking about Islam in America. And we have a guest speaker. Can you put her up there? Samia Johnson. Uh, she is somebody who's devoted her life to reaching the Muslim people right here in America, in particular right here in Cincinnati. But her ministry goes all over. And so next week, in light of everything we're seeing in our country and in our world, show up. Bring someone with you. And then the following weekend, we'll be talking about Islam in the world. Daniel Chetty, he lives in the Middle East. He reaches Muslims in the Middle East. Come and hear about that, what's happening, because it's different here in America than it is in the rest of the world. It's important for us to understand this. And then the following weekend, we have a guest speaker, David Brickner. Now, he is the leader of Jews for Jesus. I lined him up over a year ago to come and speak to us, hard to get. And so don't miss that weekend as he talks about him being a Jew, of course, reaching others from the Jewish faith. And then I'm going to close out the series talking about Buddhism. Buddhism. And that's our series called Uncovered. Now today, we're talking about Hinduism. And I'll tell you what, when I went home after the service that day, I met Vandana. We wrote back and forth to each other. But I'll tell you what, I started studying. Started meeting with people uh, of the Hindu faith. I started studying this. I needed to know what she believed so I could talk with her, engage with her. And so one of the first things I learned, of course, that Hinduism is, is an ancient religion. It goes way back in time. And I'm going to encourage you this morning, if you're not a note taker, and I'm going to be honest, when I go to a church many times, I like to sit back, listen to the message. This morning, I've given you notes. I encourage you to get those out because if you don't, you're going to lose your way. Okay, so get those notes out uh, because what I've learned about Hinduism, it's an ancient religion. But also there's a great deal of diversity in terms of what people actually believe, what Hindus actually believe. And this is because Hinduism unlike Islam or Christianity or other religions, has no founder. Also, Hinduism has no holy book that defines the religion. They have holy writings, and I'll talk about those in a moment. 
They don't have a book that defines the religion. So people believe in Hinduism many different things, which has made it very confusing for us as Americans to understand what they believe. And I'll tell you what, I'm going to make you one promise today, and I'm going to tell you what, I want you to come up afterwards if I have not delivered on my promise. I'm going to promise you today, at some point in this message, you're going to be confused. I'm making that promise to you right now. In fact, I sat down with one Hindu scholar a few years ago, and I wrote it down. Here's what he told me. Listen to his words. He said, if you reach the point where you believe you understand Hinduism, a Hindu would say that you are very confused. But if you reach the point where after studying, studying Hinduism, you state that you are confused, a Hindu would say that now you are beginning to understand. So if you get confused here this morning, don't get upset with yourself. Don't get upset with me. Just know that it's at that point you are starting to understand. This is how this works. And I'll tell you what, even though we don't understand Hinduism, we're going to understand a lot more in just a few moments We as Americans have unknowingly embraced various facets of Hindu practices. For example, yoga, meditation, comes straight from Hinduism. When you hear somebody, you know, developing an altered state of consciousness, that's Hinduism. When you hear somebody seeking enlightenment, that's Hinduism. And in the movies, we've gone and seen them, movies like Avatar, Hinduism, all the way throughout that uh, movie. And of course, Star Wars, may the force be with you. This unknowable force, well, that's Hinduism. I'm also going to say this before I dive in, that there's a little I'm going to say here this morning that every single Hindu would agree with me on. I mean, if you had 10 Hindus sitting here, uh, various things I would say, five of them would say, well, that's right. Another couple would say, well, we don't quite see it that way. And other Hindus would say, well, we don't see it that way at all. That's the diversity within Hinduism. It makes it hard to kind of nail down some key things. But there are some things that many Hindus, some people would say that most Hindus believe. So let's start with God. Hinduism's view of God. If you ask a learned Hindu, this is somebody now who really studies the faith who really is after God in terms of their own life. Somebody who's really serious about this. You ask a learned Hindu uh, what they believe about God or how many different gods there are. A learned Hindu would tell you there is one God. His name is Brahman. Brahman. One God. In fact, if you're talking only to a learned Hindu, you would think, well, then, they're a lot like us as Christians. They embrace monotheism. Monotheism is the belief in one God. This is central to the belief of a learned Hindu. But the reality is, in your everyday life, you're probably not going to come across a learned Hindu. You're going to come across a common Hindu. And common Hindus, if you talk to them for very long, you realize that they embrace a belief called pantheism. A belief that everything is God. You see, God is everywhere in everything. As a result, the sun is God. The moon is God, human beings are God, a snake is God. The bench you're sitting on right now is God. God is in everything. And this has caused Hindus to worship a variety of different objects. And this is known as animism. Animism, the belief that worship must be given to spirit beings, sacred animals, birds, humans. Even the spirits of dead relatives can also be worshipped through offerings. 
And yet the Bible makes it clear regarding all these various objects that people worship. It says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul is saying, you know what, be careful with what you worship. Don't worship what God has created. Only worship God. But nevertheless, uh, Hindus worship a variety of different things. And this is key now. Such worship has led Hindus to then worship a variety of lesser gods who all worship the high God. And so there's lower status gods, all kinds of them, that all worship the high God. And this is known as polytheism, the belief that there are many gods. In fact, when you talk to a common Hindu, somebody at your workplace or whatever, and you sit down and talk to them, um, and you ask them how many gods there are in Hinduism, you'd get a different answer based on who you're talking to. Some Hindus would say, well, there's a hundred or a thousand. Others would tell you there's probably up to 330 million gods in Hinduism. In fact, no one knows for sure how many Hindu gods there actually are. As one Hindu scholar wrote, he says, There can be as many Hindu gods as there are devotees to suit the moods, feelings, emotions, and social backgrounds of the devotees. So it's about now you're saying, okay, you haven't gotten very far, Phil, and I'm already confused. I'm already confused. Okay, set the record straight. Do Hindus believe in one god, or do they believe in many gods? Yes. And that's the answer, is yes. And regarding God or these many gods, they believe that God is the ultimate reality. He's the divine essence that permeates the entire universe. He is one who cannot be expressed. He is present everywhere in everything. This is key now. God is one. God is also many. God is truth, but God is also error. God is creator, but God is also destroyer. And the goal of every Hindu is to be one with him, with Brahman, someday. Now, when it comes to what the Bible states about God, we learn a couple things that are important for us to know. First of all, God is omnipresent. That's another key word. It means he's everywhere, but he is not a part of all creatures. The Bible tells us, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. So God is everywhere, but he's not in everything. His presence is here with us right now, but he's not in the pew. He's not in the carpet, but he is with us. So God is omnipresent. God is also unique. So he cannot be different things to different people. He stands out from the crowd, basically. The Bible tells us, Know therefore today and lay it on your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. There is only one God. And so he's omnipresent. He is unique. God is also personal. So he cannot be unknowable. He's all about relationship. In fact, God tells us in the Old Testament, he says, and I will walk among you and I will be your God and you shall be my people. God is all about having a relationship with you. He wants you to be his son, his daughter. He loves you. He is personal. God is also holy. So he cannot be compared to any other. 
The Bible tells us God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? So whatever God says he's going to do, that's truth. And you can count on it. And yet for Hindus, God is one, God is many, God is truth, God is error, God is creator, God is also destroyer. It's important for us to understand that. So that's their view of God. So what does it look like living life? Hinduism's view of life. How do we live daily life as a Hindu? Well, we've got to understand, first of all, that there are hardly any restrictions on what a Hindu can believe. And so that gets hard to define. You've got to put everyone in a box. But many Hindus, some would say most Hindus, uh, embrace the following criteria. First of all, they regard the Vedas as divinely inspired and authoritative. The Vedas are their holy scriptures, if you will. And even though they, they regard them as divinely inspired, for a Hindu, it does not mean that they think the Vedas are literally true. Or for a Hindu, it does not mean that they have to practice everything that's commanded in them. In fact, the Vedas are incredibly confusing. And that brings us all the way back to Vandana. Remember, she said, you know, if you give me a Bible, there's another book that tells me what your book says because I'll never understand it. She thought the Bible would be like the Vedas, that confusing. And for Hindus, there are many books that tell you what the Vedas say because if you were to read some of what's there, you wouldn't get it at all. But still, they regard the Vedas as divinely inspired. They also accept the caste system from highest to lowest. This is huge for us to understand. So somebody at the top of the, of the heap of the ladder here, it would be a priest, a scholar, somebody who's devoted to the Vedas, devoted to God. That's what they're solely about. That's the highest level. The next level down would be somebody who's a soldier, a warrior, or a ruler, somebody who holds political power. That's the next level down. And then would come business owners and land owners. If you own your own farm, your own business, you're the next level down. And then the bottom rung on the ladder would be somebody who's merely a worker. So if you are somebody who just goes to a job and somebody else owns that place and they give you a paycheck for the job that you do, you're at the lowest level of their system. And depending on what kind of job you have, you would be considered an outcast, an untouchable. In fact, your shadow for a Hindu, if it strikes another person while they're walking, can make that person unclean. In fact, it's very common within Hinduism, even at places of work, for some Hindus not to talk to other Hindus based on where they are in the caste system. See, if you're at the lowest level, you're a worker, you exist to serve those in the upper three levels. That's how it works. And so they believe in the Vedas. They accept the caste system. They also believe in the protection of cows. A cow can never be killed. A cow is the symbol of life. It cannot be killed. It cannot be eaten. And so you're not going to find a Hindu at Burger King. You know, you're not going to find them at Wendy's, McDonald's. From what I've experienced, you may find them at White Castle because I'm not sure what's in those things. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's like paper-thin grease all put together. I'm not sure there's actually any content in that thing. You may not find them there, but they're not going to eat hamburgers, all right, because they believe in the protection of cows. They also believe in the Atman. The soul, the Atman, the soul, the never-changing, non-material self. And because of this, they embrace reincarnation. Some call it the pattern of progression. 
And let me tell you how the pattern works. The Atman, the soul, begins to take expression in a lower life form like a bug or a worm. Over the course of centuries of time, this Atman works itself up through the ranks, ultimately taking the form of a human body. But that person would be a worker, somebody at the lowest level of the caste system. And then once that person is finally a human being, well then, if he or she does the right things, devoted enough to the Vedas, does all these things right, ultimately he or she is going to be reincarnated up to the various social classes, ultimately reaching the state of nirvana. And nirvana is this blissful state of oneness with the gods. In this state, of course, there's no more attachment to life forms or bodies you know nothing other than oneness with Brahman. That's how that works. And then they believe people progress through stages due to their karma. They progress through stages due to their karma. This is huge. Your karma dictates where you're going next, how this works. The karma is the belief that one's thoughts, hold on to this now, your thoughts, your words, and your actions determine your next state. One person writes, karma is a principle of moral reaction applied both to good and evil intentions. As a man sows, so shall he reap. Bad actions reap suffering and bondage to human existence. Good actions lead to freedom from this bondage. According to karmic law, a man may be reborn as a god, as a member of a higher or lower caste, or as an animal according to his every thought, word, and act. And so, based on your karma, you come back over and over and over and over again. So many different times that you live. Yet the Bible tells us this. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, you get one shot at life. And after that comes judgment. You live once and then you stand before God. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so when it comes to Hinduism, you might say, boy, that sounds like a lot of work. I mean, you've got to keep coming back over and over and over again in hopes that you'll finally get things right. I mean, is there any way to be saved from all of this? Well, there is salvation in Hinduism. Here's their view of salvation. There's actually three ways, basically, you can get saved. First is karma marga. Karma marga. This is the way of works. The way of works. And so through selfless action, a Hindu can gain self-realization. And so practically speaking, a parent's karma marga is raising your children up perfectly to do the right things, to think in the right ways. If you do that well, you're well on your way. An employee's karma marga is to show up early for the job, always stay late, do your job perfectly, I mean, be truthful, have full integrity. And then if you do enough good things... Eventually, then, that's going to lead you to oneness with Brahman. Now, the Bible tells us that we are to do good works. Clearly tells us. Christ tells us this. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So we are to do good works. In fact, Paul tells us that you and I, before you and I were even born, God prepared in advance good works that we are to do. Paul writes, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But here's the difference. 
a Hindu. And what you're going to learn is all these other faiths as well. They're on the do plan. All the things you got to do. And so you begin your life. And if I do the right things, and if I do this right next, and if I do this next, and I add up all these things, and I finally do enough good things, finally I'm good enough to be accepted by God and be one with him. That's how that works. For the Christian, you say, you know what? I'm never going to be able to do enough good things. I just can't. And that's why God, out of his love, sent his son for me to die on that cross. Because he did what I cannot do for me. And so I can't do enough good things. And so out of his grace, once I accept his gift of grace, that, that what he has done for me is amazing, he's forgiven me, I just have to ask him for that forgiveness. And then I begin that relationship. And then from that relationship as a son or daughter of the Most High God, it's then that I start to do the right things. I start to think the right ways. I start to talk differently. I start to live differently. It's out of that relationship. Those things don't lead me into that relationship. And that's huge. That's why Paul wrote, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul says it's God's work, not ours. Even so, there's the way of karma marga, the way of works. Then there's guiana marga. This is the way of knowledge. See, without engaging your emotions, or other people as well, a good Hindu will seek to gain more and more and more knowledge. Ultimately, his or her knowledge will save him because they will know enough to be one with Brahman. Well, the Bible tells us we need to gain in knowledge as well. In fact, if we're honest, most of us here in this room, including myself, we don't know enough about the Bible. There's always more we can learn. Paul tells us all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So we are to gain more knowledge, but we have to be careful as we do. Because it's very clear that if our pursuit is only more and more knowledge, well then we're going to end up like a Pharisee, right? Really apart from God, knowing a lot about God but not having a relationship with him. That's why Paul tells us knowledge is good, but knowledge, this knowledge can puff up. But love builds up. So gain more knowledge, but make sure you're loving people in the process. We've got to be all about love. So there's karma marga, the way of works. Gyana marga, the way of knowledge. And then bhakti marga, the way of devotion. And so what a Hindu will do is out of all the various gods that he or she might worship, they're going to select one. One God, and they're going to be devoted to that God in every thought, in everything that they do. And then ultimately, through their devotion, they will hopefully be saved from coming back over and over and over and over and over again. Well, then you might be sitting here thinking, okay, what about Jesus? Does Jesus enter into the mix here for a Hindu? Let's talk about Hinduism's view of Jesus. And this is important for us to understand. That many Hindus, if you talk to them, they would say, Jesus, absolutely, I worship Jesus. I do. And if we're not careful, we would tend to think, okay, well, then they're a Christian, they're saved. But what that means for Hindus is that Jesus is just one of the many gods that they've chosen to worship. Somewhere along the way, they might have had 300 gods, and they decided to add Jesus to the mix, and now they have 301. He becomes one of the many lower gods. He is not the high god. 
let's talk about what it looks like. And let's uncover some ways then that we can share Christ with Hindus. This is important. Here we, first of all, the first thing you're doing, if, if you meet a Hindu, if you're working with a Hindu, ask many questions. I mean, the first several times you meet with them, ask them questions about them, about their faith. As you do this, you are showing them your thirst for knowledge. You're speaking their language because it's all about knowledge. So you're, you're saying, I want to know more. So teach me about what you believe. Just ask questions. You don't need to be worried about what you have to say. Just ask questions. And then as you do, acknowledge their spirituality. Tell them it's a good thing that they're pursuing God the way that they are. And then thirdly, as you're listening to them, listen intently and don't correct their thinking. This shows incredible pride. And eventually, as you're talking more with them, maybe a few weeks, months down the road, start to focus in your own words on Jesus. And even as you do, do not put down the many gods they revere. Just focus on Christ, what Christ means to you and what he's done for you. And as you do this, and I can't say this enough, stress the cost of following Christ. Do not make salvation simple. If you do, the conversation is over. Think about it. For a Hindu, you have to live over and over and over and over and over again through centuries and centuries of time. Suddenly you can finally get things right in one of your lifetimes that you have. And now you're finally arrived. That's difficult. And so a Christian who shows up and says, you know what, I hear you. But the only thing you got to do if you're a Christian, you know, to be a Christian is just say the simple prayer and you're in. And that just seems cheap to them. And in reality, it's not really the full picture of what the Bible tells us either. And so, stress the cost of following Christ. Say, you know what? As I'm following Christ, I ask him to forgive me. And now every single day, I take another step towards him. And the more I do, the next step I take to be like him, it means I got to die. I got to take up my cross and die to various facets of myself. And that's hard to do. And then I take another step towards him. And I die to this thing that, you know what, it's not necessarily sinful or bad, but it's just keeping me from him. And then I take another step followed by another step. And it, I'll tell you what, it costs me something. Cost me in my relationship sometimes with others, but it costs me. And the more you talk this kind of language, the more they're going to listen to you. And then as you do, display your devotion to Jesus. Remember, Hindus respect people of genuine faith. So talk about what your devotion to Jesus has produced in your life. You say, you know what? As I'm following Christ, he has changed the way that I'm thinking. He changes the way that I'm talking. He has changed the way that I'm living. Speak about the fruit of that relationship. Allow a Hindu then freedom to consider their choice. Don't press him or her to say the sinner's prayer. Don't do that. Let time go on. And as you do, remind him or her that Christ came to provide a way to the high God. So one day, the Hindu can live forever in the highest heaven. So you're going to say, I know you worship a variety of lesser gods, and Jesus is one of, the, one of those in the mix. I want to encourage you to focus on Christ. Because as you worship Christ, Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So only he can provide you a way to God the Father. So focus on him, would you? Would you pray about that? Would you think about that? And as you're talking to your Hindu friend, you always got to remember this. 
that person that God made, that God loves, he or she believes they are solely responsible for saving themselves. It's completely up to them to save themselves. Now the reality is, coming back full circle to us, probably not a lot of Hindus in this place right now, but I want to challenge you to think, yeah, you may not be a Hindu, but are you living like one in some way? Have you embraced the mindset in some way? I asked the question because I've told you once before, and I'm just going to just be flat out honest with you. I have people that meet with me. They come into my office, and these would be people from our church. People have been Christians for 10, 20, 30 years. They'll tell me I've been a Christian for a long time in, in some situations. I'll say, okay, just help me understand where you are in your faith. And I'll ask them this question. I'll say, the moment you die, we're all going to die. The moment you die and you stand before God, if God were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would your answer be? And I'm not lying to you. Every single time, it doesn't matter how old the person is, if they're a male or a female, they all answer the same way. And here's their answer. I tried to do my best. I I tried to, to love people. I mean, I tried to be selfless. I, I, I tried to do good things. Is that good enough? Well, ask me that question. Is that good enough? Did I answer right? And that kind of mentality is the to-do plan. I got to do these things. Did I stack up enough good things to please God that I could be one with him? Did I? I hope I did. But Christianity is the only religion It does not embrace the to-do plan. It embraces the done plan. It has been accomplished for us on the cross. Jesus did this for us on the cross. He paid the price of our sins for us. It's the done plan. And so once we come to the point where we realize, you know what, Jesus, thank you for dying for me, paying the price so I didn't have to pay it myself, so that I did not have to go to hell. You went there for me. Thank you, Jesus. And then placing your life in him and following him and asking for his grace and his forgiveness, that starts the relationship. So yes, you will then naturally out of that loving relationship, think differently, talk differently, and live differently. That's the done plan. What plan are you on? I want to give you the opportunity here to not only think about that, but respond to that. Paul wrote, he said, he saved us, listen here, not because of works done by us in righteousness. That's not how he saved us, but according to his own mercy. It's God's work, not ours. And so if you've been calling yourself a Christian for years, months, doesn't matter. And the first plan is the one that you've kind of been thinking, I hope I'm doing enough. I hope I'm good enough. I want to give you the opportunity right here, right now, to start the journey with Christ. The saying this prayer is not the totality. I'll tell you what, when we're in a church, it says, all you got to do is pray this prayer and you're in, you're done, that's all there is to it. That's a lie. It is merely the beginning of a journey that you take with Christ. And every single day you take another step towards him. It's the start of the journey. You receive the gift of grace and then you join him in the rest of your life. I want to give you the opportunity to respond. So will you all close your eyes? This prayer may not apply to you, but if it does, I encourage you to respond just quietly in your heart between you and God. 
You don't need to speak it out loud. Just between you and God, say this in your mind, your heart to God. Repeat after me. Dear Jesus, I know that I'm far from you. Because of my sin, I've rejected your gift of grace many times. Please forgive me. I now place my hope and faith in the work you accomplished for me on the cross. I now pledge to follow you, live in relationship with you, and obey you. Until the day you call me home to worship you forever. Amen. You prayed that prayer for the first time. I'm going to be out in the atrium in just a few moments. Introduce yourself. I just want to help you take the next steps in your journey. So just let me know. But for now, I want you to think about you. I want you to think about our world right now. I want you to think about our country right now. And our country's in a mess. It's getting worse and worse. All across our world, we're seeing it just go every which way. And I'll tell you what, uh, the Lord laid it on my heart a year ago to put this series together. Not knowing a year ago where we'd be now. And so in light of what we're seeing all across our world in our own country, in light of all that's you know on the news and all the commentators and what everyone's saying, next week's message is crucial for you to be here. We're talking about Islam in America. And I think it's really important for us to understand this thing from a proper, humble perspective. And so you're going to hear the truth. And Sami, I've heard her before. She is downright amazing. You're going to love it. So bring someone with you next week. Because friends, our aim, our goal, our mission here at this church is to engage people to live and serve like Jesus. That means Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists, Jews, people who don't call themselves anything at all. Let's be part of the mission. And I think it's important for us to be here next week and the week that follows so that we can understand the people around us and not just understand them, but love them and engage with them. Become friends with them. That's what Christ wants us to do. And so be in prayer this week for who you're going to bring next weekend and the weekend that follows. Because this series is crucial for us right here, right now, at this point in our history. Let's not take it lightly. And so now go in his grace, go in his peace, armed with his strength and his forgiveness. And as you go, look for opportunities around you. There's, there's people everywhere. Who are you going to engage this week to live and serve like Jesus? Let's go out and let's live radically for his name. I will